0: There's uh, one thing Americans know about. It is debt. (laughs) It wasn't a joke, but it's true. (laughs) America is a nation built on debt. Many believe that to get ahead in life requires getting into debt, but they quickly find thereafter their debt has not put them ahead, but behind. They thought debt would be like the wind in their sails, but it turns out to be more like an anchor around their neck. The problem is that it is incredibly easy to get into debt and incredibly hard to get out of debt. 80% of Americans have consumer debt. It comes to a total of $14 trillion. Not counting mortgages, the average consumer debt is $38,000. Almost half the population lives paycheck to paycheck and 20% of people have zero savings. It just takes a few poor decisions or one medical emergency or a recession and now you're in deep debt. And to get out of debt, you just got two options. The first is to repay your debts. And you can do that the hard or the harder way. The hard way is just is to pay. You've got to save your money, tighten your budget, and pay back what you owe. That could take decades. Still so beats the harder way, which is to lose everything you have. Repossession, foreclosure. It used to be that you were sent to debtor's prison if you could not repay your debts. Now you, just, you lose all your possessions and your status. But this is why many include debt as one of those bad four-letter words. It's just too easy to get into, too hard to get out of. But there is a second way to get out of debt. It it is quite easy, but it's extremely rare. It is to be forgiven. The person or entity holding your debt can choose to simply release you of your obligation. You're never entitled to such debt forgiveness, but it can happen. Like I said, though, it's, it's rare. How many times have you heard of a bank just releasing someone's mortgage for free? Just go on your way. It seems like only corporations get their debts forgiven by the U.S. government. But that's, that's no deed of benevolence. It just goes to show you that when man forgives debt, it's most often driven by some other self-interest. Debt forgiveness is less about benevolence and more about gaining some advantage. I think that's what you see going on right now with the prospect of canceling student loans. 40 million Americans have student loan debt. Average is about 27000 per person. Total is $1.7 Student debt is a massive problem without getting into the pros and cons of canceling it. i can tell you one thing for sure. It will only ever happen if it's politically advantageous to the party in power. If, if there's something to gain, then it will happen. Man's debt, man's forgiveness of debt can rarely be described as benevolent. It's usually self-serving. Thankfully though, thank God, like literally thank God that he's much different and his forgiveness of debt is much different than ours. God is not like us. He's, he's greater. He stands ready to forgive people of all their debt, spiritually speaking, just for free. We serve our forgiving God. It's a reflection of his essential character. As he declared in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he said of himself, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In reality, we're all guilty and God will be only just to make us pay the hard way to send us to hell, a type of eternal debtor's prison. But through the atoning death of his son, he's willing to accept Christ's payment on your behalf. And so it's only in Christ that you can be forgiven of all of your sin debt before God. And it's only by faith that you can receive that gift. You need to cry out to God through Christ to, to wash you, to forgive you of your debts. That's your only hope. And, and that That is the defining element of the salvation prayer. It's Lord, forgive me of my debts. But that prayer is not just for salvation. That's a prayer we are to to keep praying before the Lord. To make this a, a daily prayer. Lord, forgive us our debts. We know this. We can say this because that's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Even as disciples, though, forgiven we're still to regularly confess our sins to god directly asking him to forgive us our debts and we'll find this is actually a critical element of prayer lord gives it to us in the lord's prayer that's our text for this morning so you can open your bibles and return back to matthew chapter 6 as we carry on matthew 6 verses 9 through 15 the lord's prayer as we continue to make our way through this passage This is a familiar prayer the Lord taught to his disciples. And seeing that we too are his disciples, it's only right for us to take his words and learn from him how to pray. And that's been our goal. We've been doing that for weeks. We want to carry on today looking at the next petition. We're going one by one. There are six of these petitions in total in this prayer. It's surprisingly short and sweet, this little prayer, but it's potent and the words are rich. The first we've learned focus entirely on god and his glory the second three focus on us and our need and in these short statements jesus leads us to lift our prayers to what really matters he's showing us what it looks like to commune with our father who is in heaven and there's no doubt we should similarly pattern our prayers after the lord's prayer this model prayer And that's what we aim to do. It's familiar to us now, but let's go ahead and read this one more time. Matthew 6, 9 through 13 to begin. Christ teaches us how to pray. He says, Then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As you know, the Lord's Prayer is such a landmark passage in Scripture that we've opted to go through it slowly, line by line, just marinating in the essence of Christ's words. And so far, we've covered the first four petitions in pairs of two. And... I had wanted to finish doing that today, covering the final two petitions. But there is something extra special about the next one up. This number five is found in verse 12, where he says, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the one petition that involves our actions in it. And this is the only petition on which Jesus gave some commentary. There's a postscript to the Lord's prayer down in verses 14 and 15. And there Jesus, he felt the need to elaborate on just one part of the prayer. And that just happens to be this part, verse 12, forgiveness. Look at verse 14. Jesus adds right after he says, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Clearly the idea of being forgiven by God and then forgiving others was of paramount importance to the Lord. And it doesn't end here. Forgiveness stands out as a theme in Matthew's gospel. Both Matthew and Jesus are making a big point here and we don't want to miss it. So this fifth petition is going to capture all of our time this morning. We'll come back next week. We'll wrap it up with the the last petition and some closing thoughts. But we still have plenty to occupy us for this morning as we just continue to progress in this simple overall goal to to learn how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. Like disciples at the feet of the Lord, just teach us how to pray. And that's what he's doing. So let's carry on now with, with number five, this fifth petition, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts comes right out of verse 12. and Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Christ here is leading us to pray a prayer of confession, seeking remission of our debts. Now, in all these messages on the Lord's Prayer, if you were to take away just one simple application, everything we've learned so far, I would say so far it's it's to put adoration before supplication in your prayers. Meaning, to, before you, you barge in and just give God your list of requests and wants and needs, just Stop and worship. To praise him first. Prayer is first and foremost praise. Don't just barge into his room and present your list of demands. If your prayer life simply consists of asking God for stuff, even good things, still something's wrong. First, you need to recognize the one to whom you are praying. the, The eternal, transcendent, omnipotent God. Perfectly Holy perfectly righteous, just see his glory and hold your tongue, put your hand over your mouth and just bow down and worship. Whenever you talk to God, the first thing out of your mouth should be praise. And then the second thing, and then the third thing. But that's how Jesus is teaching us to pray. The first three petitions, they're all about praise. We start by exalting God for his kingdom, his name, and his will, not our own. Now, God is still a loving father. He is concerned about our needs. And so, of course, there's still a place for supplication, making your requests, putting them at his feet. We will do that at the end of our prayer. Still ultimately praying that God's will be done, not our own. But overall, though, in prayer, adoration goes first, supplication goes last. That's how to pray. But now we learn in verse 12 that somewhere in that mix, there should be a word of confession. Can one who's defiled really stand in God's presence at all? And clearly our sins must be dealt with. You throw a little thanksgiving into this pot, you stir them all together, and many would would come up with a familiar acronym to understand how to pray. Many of you know it. It's ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, uh, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And it's quite fitting. It's, It's a great biblical pattern for how to pray. Adoration first, supplication last, somewhere in there, confession. And that's what we're going to narrow in on this morning. We want to get confession right because a lot of people get confession wrong. Millions of people think the only way to be forgiven of their sins is to confess their sins to a human priest in a tiny dark box. The sacrament of penance or confession is one of the seven Catholic sacraments And it states that that the faithful can only be absolved of mortal sins by confessing to an ordained priest. The priest will then give them deeds of penance by which they can be made right with God. And billions within larger Christendom think this is what confession means. This is so wrong for so many reasons. But topping the list is the fact that they teach you can only be forgiven through a human priest mediator which is just patently false. That Catholic priests are to be referred to as father only heightens this malpractice because later in Matthew 23 verse nine, as you know, Jesus will say, do not call anyone on earth, your father for one is your father. He who is in heaven. He's talking there about spiritual authority. We are to revere no man like that. There's only one father. He's in heaven. And you do recall who is the audience, the object of this prayer. It is our Father who is in heaven. Not our Father on earth, our Father who is in heaven. And that includes this prayer of confession. You can confess to God directly. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Because Christ has come, you don't need a human priest or mediator anymore. It's like the whole point. And Christ here, Christ himself is teaching us to take our prayers, that includes confession, directly to the throne of grace, to God directly. So, like I said, we need to get confession right. It's not about rattling off all the bad things you've done to a guy in a box. What is then confession about? Well, again, since we're just narrowing in on one verse this morning, just one verse, verse 12, it's going to be helpful to add some structure. So, Let's try and uncover the prayer of confession through six questions. Six questions to uncover the prayer of confession. First, what is the nature of our debt before God? What is the nature of our debt before God? Verse 12, forgive us our debts. It all centers on this word for debt. The Bible uses many different concepts to help us understand sin Sometimes sin is missing the mark, like an arrow that has fallen short of the bullseye. Sometimes sin is transgressing a boundary, like deviating from a path. And sometimes sin is debt. And we know Jesus is talking about sin because in the alternate version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel, he straight up says, Forgive us our sins. And what do we learn about the sin problem from the concept of debt? Well, debt speaks of. Uh, speaks of obligation. We rightfully owe something to another party. When we sin before God, we are obligated to him, not, not a monetary debt, but a moral debt. God is perfectly holy. He made us to be holy as well. When we're not, we owe him a debt of righteousness. With each and every sin, it's like a page is added to our ledger, an IOU to God for righteousness that we don't have. Each page in this ledger represents an unpayable debt. Just takes one page. Our sins may be finite in duration, but they're infinite in magnitude. Our sins are infinite offenses because of the, the absolute holiness of the one we sin against. So each sin is deadly. It only takes one. The most venomous snake in the world is the inland taipan from Australia. Of course, it's from Australia. And one dose can kill a hundred men. And one drop can kill you. And that's like sin. Just takes one drop and you're defiled. You're in eternal debt before the eternally holy God. And unlike monetary debt, God is not obliged to forgive us our moral debt. I can't improve upon this illustration from R.C. Sproul. So I'm just going to use it. Just picture a young boy at an ice cream parlor orders two scoops of ice cream. The employee hands it over and says, that'll be $2. But the boy starts to whimper because he only has $1. But You're sitting there. You've got a dollar in your hand. What would you do? Well, of course, you'd fork over the dollar. You'd pay for the rest of his ice cream. And the employee, that that money is legal tender. The employee has to accept it. he will take the money. Boy gets his ice cream. It's all fine. Now imagine a, a slightly different scenario he hands him the ice cream. The boy has no dollars. He decides to just run out of the store and steal the ice cream. And the employee runs after him shouting, stop, thief. A policeman just so happens to be there and grabs the boy by the collar, hauls him in the store to face his reckoning. Now, you're also sitting right there. What would you do? What would you say? Maybe you'd say like, wait, officer, don't press charges. Don't take the boy to jail. Let me pay the $2 for his ice cream for him. And that would be nice, but this time the employee does not have to accept your money because the boy's debt is no longer just monetary but moral. The employee can choose to release the boy from his moral debt or leave him to pay under the law. And this illustration shows our situation before God that we owe him no mere financial debt but a moral debt. This is not a debt we can repay. And God has no obligation to forgive us. God has the option of making us pay by doing cold, hard time and perdition. And if he were to make us pay, he'd be doing nothing wrong. There'd be no injustice that's actually perfectly just. But God does have the option of forgiving us and letting us go. How can he do that? Exodus 34, 7, we just read, he'll by no means leave the guilty unpunished. How can he just let us go? that's our second question. How can we be forgiven of our debt before God? How can we be forgiven of our debt before God? God is perfectly just. He just can't let the guilty go free. That's not just. The only way he can forgive our debt is if someone else pays in our stead. How can someone pay a moral debt for us? The only option we have on earth are fellow sinners, fellow indebted sinners. They can't pay a moral debt for us. Who's got the bank account for this? It would take someone truly sinless and perfectly righteous to pay a moral debt for us. But of course, we know that was Jesus, the Lord of glory, holy, unstained, undefiled, separated from sinners. But in the amazing grace of God, even though he was the offended party, he determined both not to press charges for our sins, and even to pay our moral debt for us, which he did through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. This is the only way we can be forgiven through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And Jesus took our certificate of debt, which was in our own handwriting, this long ledger book of our sins. And he signed every page and wrote paid in full. This is the free gift of grace Jesus offers to us and you receive this only one way by faith in him. Romans 3:23 through 25. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So now by faith in Jesus, you can have peace with God, Romans 5.1. And therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Because Jesus took all of our sins away, we're we're now legitimately not guilty. The guilt was transferred. We're not guilty. Paul highlights this later in Romans 8.33. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Meaning if God declares us debt-free, who can say otherwise? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you've never received it, do so now, today. It's your only hope of being reconciled to God and forgiven. A day is coming when God will collect all debts of righteousness owed to him. And on that day, if your account is not linked to Christ by faith. If you're not united to Christ by faith, you have no hope. You, you cannot pay. You will perish. So cry out like that sinful but broken tax collector who just said, Lord, have, have mercy on me, the sinner. And God promises to always hear that cry of faith and to forgive. As was read this morning, as far as the east is from the west, so far will he cast your sins from you. This is the good news of, of forgiveness in Christ, how we can be forgiven as believers. Now, when you become a believer, though, leads to another question, a big question, number three. Why do believers need to pray for more forgiveness? Why do believers need to pray for more forgiveness? This is a big question. Back to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, he's leading us to pray for more forgiveness. This is a... Uh, a pattern for prayer for believers. This is a prayer for disciples, those who've already come to faith in Jesus. Doesn't that mean they're already justified by faith? So why would we need to keep praying, forgive us our debts? It's not like a one and done thing. Why would we keep praying forgive us our debts? We sing Jesus paid it all. I mean, is that true? Why, Why do we need to pray this? Well, this is a vital distinction you must understand, so let's answer it. To clarify, believers in Christ are justified, but not yet glorified. We are forgiven, but we still sin daily. So what is the effect of these ongoing sins? And to be clear, they do not unjustify us. That's not possible. They don't condemn us. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We are truly, completely forgiven in God's eyes, legally forgiven. This does not give us a license to sin, but God's grace really is greater than all of our sins. And for believers, therefore, our sins no longer separate us from God. We've been reconciled. We've been adopted into his family. He doesn't kick us out. There's no unadoption here. However, our ongoing sins can serve to distance us from God. When we sin, we are removing ourselves from intimate fellowship with God, wherein lies the fullness of peace and joy in salvation. I mean, God never moves. He doesn't go anywhere. We're the ones moving away from him when we step back into sin. We step back from the glory of his presence. We stumble in the darkness. The consequence of this is not condemnation for the true believer, but it is a real loss in spiritual vitality. It's a real loss in spiritual vitality. And we will add that, you know, ongoing unrepentant sin most definitely will call into question the assurance of your salvation. Here's an analogy I use often. In salvation, God is no longer our judge. He is our father. So picture a father and a son getting into a fight. They're yelling at each other. They're angry, raising their voices. It's getting pretty heated. So they decide to take a break. They're not reconciled. They're just a little time out. They've gone to their separate corners for round two. In that moment, are they still father and son? Well, yeah, of course. I mean that, that can't change. That status by definition can't change. But are they is their relationship as it should be? Well, obviously no. Are, are they enjoying the love and the fellowship they should have as father and son? No. Their relationship is hindered and so their lives are to a degree hindered. So it is with us and God, except all the hindrance is one-sided. We're the ones who move away. And as often as we do, we, we need a type of cleansing or restoration to return to God. And that is the nature of the daily forgiveness Jesus is leading us to seek in this prayer. Forgive us our debts. It's a relational reconciliation, you might say for the believer. Jesus himself gives the perfect picture of what he's talking about over in John 13 when he washes the disciples' feet. Go ahead and turn there, John 13. This foot washing was an example of humility, an example for the disciples of supreme sacrificial service. But at the same time, his actions were a living parable of our relationship to the Lord, made clear by the commentary Jesus gives during the foot washing. So he gets to Peter. Peter essentially says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. You're the Lord. And Jesus responds, verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. To be Christ's disciple, you must be washed by him, which is to say, justified. And Peter naturally responds, being enthusiastic. Like, well, if that's the case, then don't just wash my feet, wash my head, wash my hands. Give me a bath. And Christ clarifies verse 10. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Peter does need a bath. This is speaking of salvation, which he has already received. The clear uh, exception is Judas. He's not clean. But all the other disciples had been justified already. They don't need a bath. They don't need to be re-justified. And neither do we. We do not need that justification forgiveness ever again. We are not guilty, clean in God's eyes forevermore. But they still need foot washing because as they walk in this world, uh, some of the defilements of this world stick to them. Their feet get dirty. They're defiled by ongoing sin. And if they're going to enter the father's house to commune with him, they're going to need their feet washed. They're going to need a type of cleansing to draw near to God. They need to be forgiven of their daily debts. And once again, so it goes for us. The good news is that Christ will wash us every time. He'll wash our feet, so to speak, every time. He already died for us. He does not need to reascend the cross to reatone for us every time. Once again, contrary to teachings of God, Roman Catholics, the sacrament of Eucharist or communion, they're literally re-sacrificing the, they say, the literal body and blood of Jesus on the altar to reatone for sins every time. But no, Jesus really did pay it all. By his righteousness, we're justified, we are cleansed, we're restored in full fellowship with God. Jesus makes it clear in John 13. John himself makes it crystal clear in his first epistle. Let's go over there. 1 John chapter 1. Let's hear now John's commentary on this. 1 John chapter 1, where John lays out the the right and response to our ongoing sin. He's talking about believers. He's clearly talking to believers, for believers, and he, he lays out the right and wrong responses to our ongoing sin. What does John say? We have to be brief here, but what is the wrong response to your sin as a believer? It is to cover it up, to deny it. Verse 8, verse 10, a little sandwich. He says in verse 8, verse John 1. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, he adds, if we say we uh, have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The wrong response to your ongoing sin is to deny it. To be like Adam and Eve, blame others, make up an excuse, cover it up. That's a form of spiritual pride to which God is opposed. His grace is only for the humble. And that humility is going to be expressed not by denying your sin, but by confessing it, not by covering it up, but just uncovering it before the Lord seeking forgiveness. That's verse nine. You should know first, John one, nine, if we confess our, our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what the Lord wants us to do. How do we respond to our ongoing sin? We confess it. God already knows our sin, but he wants to see us see our sin the way he sees it. That's what's behind this word confess. It means to say the same thing about your sin as God says. When you confess your sin in prayer, it involves a recognition of your sin, a holy hatred, For your sin. A mourning over your sin. A turning away from your sin. But Jesus promises to cleanse you. Every time. Verse 9 says he's faithful to do so. Meaning he will do it every time. It says he's righteous to do so. Meaning he has to do it every time. He's bound himself by his word. His promise and his work. It's his offer. And again this is not a ticket to sin. But this is the source. Of our renewed confidence. And vitality. In our daily Christian walk. This is the source of our renewed confidence. And vitality in our daily Christian walk. As he says in the next verse. 1 John 2. Verse 1. My little children. I am writing these things to you. So that you may not sin. We're not trying to sin here. But he says if anyone sins. We have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only. But also for those of the whole world. Christ has already made satisfaction. We're not talking reatonement. We have an advocate. This is our restoration to confidence before him. And so let us continually give thanks for Jesus, our advocate who washes our feet as often as we humbly go before him, that we may stand in the full presence of the father with full joy, full confidence. Now we gotta keep moving. Question four, How often should you confess your sins? How often should you confess your sins? And just just to give a foil here, a contrast with the, the Catholic sacrament of penance, you're only required to confess your sins once a year. That's it. Once a year, you're good to go. I hope it's apparent to you, though, that you should confess your sins to God as often as you sin. Remember, God's standard for us is taught by Jesus, Matthew 5.48 you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. As often as you're not, well, repent. God's grace abounds. Repent, be renewed. This confession is essential to godly, faithful living. For one, if sin quenches the Holy Spirit, you could easily say confession unquenches the Holy Spirit. But also confession is meant to restore you to the full joy of your salvation and again, that's absolutely essential to your spiritual growth. Sin comes with built-in consequences like guilt and shame, which leads you to hide from God. You pull away like Adam and Eve, but the longer you pull away and remain in the darkness, the more your sin multiplies, as does your spiritual depression. You're not meant to wallow in the mire. As quickly as you stumble in the darkness, you are to quickly get back up, Confess, repent, be renewed, and move on. A short circuit in true confession might be one of the reasons you are not experiencing spiritual growth, but spiritual decline and dejection. You stumble, you fall in the mud, you feel too dirty to return to God, but don't. The Lord already knows your sin and shame. Christ already died for it. Let's go to him in confession and repentance and be fully restored. Psalm 32 King David did this after his sin as a believer with Bathsheba. He was finally broken over his sin and confessed in repentance. Writes Psalm 32 as a result. And here's verses three through five. He confesses, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Like he affirms in Psalm 51, the second Psalm he wrote after Bathsheba, the Lord restores the fullness of the joy of salvation to him. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. This this confession is meant to have a sanctifying effect. You recall the Savior who died for your sins. You think of your sins which nailed him there. That should increase your resolve to crucify your flesh with its passions and desires. Don't ever give sin a safe harbor in your heart. Expose it, uncover it, confess it, turn from it. If you don't, if you draw away from God, he will draw away from you. And if you move away, he won't hear your prayers. You're too far away. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But on the flip side, as James 4, 8 says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. The Lord stands ready And willing to cleanse us. Not not seven times. But seven times 70 times. Meaning every time we sin. That's how often Jesus said. We should forgive others when they sin against us. But the breadth of that forgiveness. Comes from how God forgives us. Gives us of all of our sins. And he'll wash our feet every single time. So great is his mercy toward us. And so take heart. And confess your sins as, as often. As you sin. Is part of a a regular Christian practice. Now, speaking of forgiving one another, leads to the next big question, number five. How does forgiving others relate to God forgiving us? How does forgiving others relate to God forgiving us? This comes from verse 12. It's, It's a big question. Go back to Matthew 6, by the way, if you're not there, and the Lord's Prayer. Verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts. Then he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. At first glance, it might be confusing. Is Jesus saying us receiving forgiveness from God is conditional on us forgiving others? Is he saying that? Well, no, not quite. These two concepts are related, but our forgiveness is not conditional. Verse 12 does not say forgive us because we have forgiven our debtors. Uh, it says, forgive us uh, as we have forgiven others. This adverb as or just as is being used comparatively. This is an aspiration, not a limitation, you might say. If, if God's forgiveness of us was conditioned on how we forgive others, I mean, we'd be doomed. Our forgiveness of others is so imperfect, we would be lost. But no, we do not receive God's forgiveness because we forgive others. We receive it simply by his mercy. Now, scripture does teach a certain heart attitude is required to receive that mercy. That heart attitude is humility. This is a brokenness over sin, wherein repentance you plead to God to have mercy on you, the sinner. Again, you think of that tax collector in Luke 18. He was a sinner, but he was. Broken, contrite, penitent, in heart. And the Lord said, he went home justified, contrary to the Pharisee who was proud and self-righteous. And so here's the connection. See, that same heart condition of humility, if genuine, it will be quick and ready to forgive others their sins against you. Those who've been truly broken over their sin they will be most willing to do unto others what they want the Lord to do unto them, namely release them of all their debt, which God has already done. To refuse to release others from their debt they owe you, so to speak, that, that just shows a heart that has not yet been transformed by God's forgiving mercy. The clarification we need for this point comes from another parable Jesus gave in Matthew 18. So let's turn again, Matthew 18, and read that. See that. He, he tells us what he means. Again, forgiveness being a theme in Matthew's gospel. This parable only found in Matthew's gospel. This is a long but, but very straightforward parable to illustrate this exact point about forgiveness. It, it all comes together in a final punchline. That's long. We're just going to read through this. We don't have time to explain it, but it doesn't need much explanation. It all culminates in in the punchline. So let's, let's read though and be reminded. Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the unforgiving steward. Matthew 18, 21 says, And Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like up to seven times? Peter's thinking like, that's a lot. That's pushing it. Jesus said to him, I do, not, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And He doesn't mean 490. He means every time. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. All you need to know here is that one talent is about 15 years of daily wages. 15 years, that's 10,000 talents. So I don't know how he got into this debt, by the way, but he's in trouble. It broke the castle walls or something on it. Verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, understatement, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and a repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me. I'll repay you everything, which obviously is not possible. But verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt free to go. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. Denarii at one day's wage. So 100 days wage. That's a lot, but not, not that much. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Verse 35. The punchline, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's a powerful punchline, tells us everything we need to know here. We no doubt the wicked slave represents a false disciple of Christ, not a genuine convert, and his falsehood is revealed most by what? His unwillingness to forgive his fellow brother. And refusing to extend mercy to others betrays the claim that you have received God's mercy. If that's you, this habitual, unrepentant, unwillingness to forgive others, it's calling into question whether you have actually received God's transforming mercy. So we find then that the act of forgiveness, it is one of the, the chief fruits on the tree of righteousness for the believer. It's easily a litmus test for true saving faith. Forgiving others, it's one of the proofs that your heart is no longer hardened by sin, but broken, and not just broken, melted down by God's mercy. Sinners and some false believers, they they still have hard hearts before God. They pretend to be broken, but they don't go far enough. A hard heart can be broken into a thousand pieces, but each piece can still be as hard as stone. Your heart must also be melted to be reforged by the Lord. And that happens when you encounter the, the furnace of his love and his mercy in forgiveness. The one who knows by faith that he's been forgiven this infinite debt. How can he truly withhold forgiving a fellow brother? A relatively small, minuscule debt. I mean, The, the disparity in the size of debts just says it all here. But in case this still isn't clear to you, Jesus gives us one last bit of commentary back to Matthew 6. In the Lord's Prayer, this is, again, this is the only petition in the Lord's Prayer on which Jesus decided to elaborate. What does that tell you? It sure seems like forgiving others, it's a pretty big deal to Jesus. It's a pretty big deal in our Christian walk. And so verses 14 and 15. He adds after, he says, if, for if you forgive others, their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. These verses reiterate the point he made in verse 12, how you treat others is the greatest test of your condition before God. As James 2.13 says, judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. The only difference here in verses 14 and 15 is that he puts this in the future tense, which likely indicates that the judgment he's talking about is eschatological, the final judgment. On the last day, on that final judgment, all those who have refused to forgive others, give that final proof they've never found God's forgiveness by faith. And being unforgiven, well, they'll be judged, judged without mercy. You need to make certain that's not you You do that simply by having a a genuine, total, wholehearted faith in Christ. That faith will transform you and give you a new heart. Though still difficult because of our flesh, will forgive. How can we not? And that's our last question, which we'll finish with. Rhetorically, number six, do you forgive others when they sin against you? Do you forgive others when they sin against you? We just need to ask now by way of reflection, what about you? Do you pass this litmus test? Do you forgive others when they sin against you? We all know how easy it is not to forgive. It's very easy because of our sinful flesh still remaining to hold on to offenses, to refuse to release someone from the little debt that they owe you. Clutch it tightly, you won't let them go. You want to make them pay. Think about how easily we get offended. A little child carrying a bowl of cereal, trips, spills, milk everywhere. A group of friends at church go out to lunch afterward, but they don't invite you. Or you cover for some coworkers at work, but they don't even say thanks. And these relational debts, they don't even amount to a hundred denarii. It's just a few pennies of debt. But still, we hold on to them. We refuse to release them. And look, even when you're talking about greater offenses, some very serious sins against you, Even still, what excuse can you give for withholding forgiveness? Even if the other person is not repentant, still, what could keep you from the heart attitude of forgiveness, which is required of us? They're a sinner. Well, so are you. They don't deserve forgiveness. Neither did you. They need to pay. So do you. God chose to release you. But what they did was wrong. It's just, it's not fair for them to go free. That's true. It is not fair, but it is grace. And if you've received it, how can you justify not giving it? You're called to leave vengeance and retribution to the Lord. He's the only perfectly just judge. We're just not qualified to be the final judge. All sin will be accounted for, right? All debts will be paid either by the sinner in hell or by Christ on the cross. You, you leave that accounting to God, He has rather called you to be like Him in His grace, His mercy, and His love, which show themselves in forgiving others. Ephesians 5:1 says, "Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Your child of God is supposed to be like Him. How? The verse before that, Ephesians 4:32 tells us, it says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving." Each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you; therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children. You got to be humbled by the size of debt God has forgiven you, and the sins of others against you, however big they might be, they're still dwarfed by the fort knocks of debt God forgave you. That perspective has to compel you to forgive. We're all we're all sinners. We're all just justified by grace alone. How can we not treat others as we have been treated with grace? If you're here and you've fallen short in this area, as you surely have, as we all have, being still with the flesh. But if you're still clutching onto someone's debt and you refuse to let go, be convicted and compelled to change this morning. Hey, thank God he forgives even our unforgiveness. But will you confess that, repent, be renewed, and forgive others their debts against you? just as we have been forgiven. So what we must do. And ultimately, this is why we celebrate, though, right? As Christians, we rejoice and sing so much because we're debt-free. Someone in, in loads of debt, when they finally get out of debt, they party, they, they celebrate. They're excited to be free from the clutches of their debt. Well, you know, shouldn't we celebrate more? We've been freely, unconditionally, benevolently released from debt. A debt we could never pay back. The debt of our sin. All by the grace of Jesus. We, we must show that grace to others. And we must thank God for that grace. In 1772, William Cooper penned the lyrics to a now beloved hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood. And he actually drew inspiration from Zechariah 13 verse 1. Which reads, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David. And for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And with that, he wrote the first stanza. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And that These are precious words to us now. We sing in celebration, and rightly so. But Cooper wrote those words only after just emerging from an extremely debilitating bout of depression. He tried to kill himself three times, but it was only the, the good news of being debt-free that could lift that cloud. And that good news indeed is enough to sustain us in joy and thanksgiving all the days of our lives and eternity. So let us walk in this way and forgive in this way, rejoice in this way and pray in this way. And let's do that now. Our Father who is in heaven, we, we exalt you this morning as we gather your people all here for one reason, that we have been forgiven, justified in Christ the Savior. That's why we're here. We gather. You, you own our lives. You've redeemed us and forgiving us. But we are very happy to be your people because we know, we know what it means, a debt forgiven we could never repay and convict us under the load of that debt, under its, its load being released to now be like our Father in heaven, to forgive others. There might be some here even this morning, Lord, who are still carrying around the weight of their sin, the debt, an anchor around their neck that will sink their souls forever. But there's only one way. Life can be founded and forgiveness can be founded. And we pray you open their eyes this morning that they humble themselves. There's only one way. The way down is the way up. May they humble themselves and just cry out to you. They need no priest. When they go to Christ, their Savior alone, and just cry out, have mercy on me, the sinner. You promise to hear, to forgive, to make a new to justify, let them rejoice as well as we rejoice. Uh, people forgiven, what can keep us from singing, from gathering, from worshiping, from living for the Savior who has done so much for us? Above all though, this morning, may we be compelled to forgive our neighbors, forgive one another, to just release debts. It's hard, but you show us the better way. So to convict us, renew us in forgiveness, in confession. We thank you for washing our feet by which we can walk cleanly before you. And draw near to the throne each and every day. So we praise you and exalt you for all these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.